you for joining us for The Play Readers, a podcast where we discuss unusual or infrequently produced plays. I'm your co-host, Andrea. And I'm Nick. And we are The Play Readers. Our play for today is The Cave Dwellers by William Saroyan. It touches on themes of poverty and pride, loneliness and love, and also one of the actors portrays a trained bear. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Nick, why don't you uh, tell us about this show's history? The Cave Dwellers by William Saroyan was first produced at the Bijou Theater in New York City on October 19, 1957. This was actually sort of a late career play for William Saroyan. Mm-hmm. His career started back in the 30s, roughly 1934. He mm-hmm. was a novelist. He was a short story writer. I think he did a little bit of nonfiction here and there, but what he's really famous for and what he's really remembered for is uh, his playwriting career. Okay. It was a lot of different things. His first big playwriting success, and I think really his first big writing success, was a play called The Time of Your Life, mm-hmm. which was produced originally produced in 1939 and won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1940. Okay. He also wrote a number of short stories that were collected in a collection called My Name is Aram. Uh, that was produced in 1940. Mm-hmm. He also uh, wrote a novel called The Human Comedy, which was adapted to a screenplay, which won the uh, 1943 Academy Award for uh, Best Story. Oh. Uh, Saroyan himself was from Fresno. Oh, all right. And uh, his parents were Armenian immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what he wrote about was the experience of being an immigrant in the United States. Sure. Uh, the Time of Your Life is uh, its kind of an ensemble piece. It takes place in a bar and there are people kind of coming and going and there's this it kind of feels like an author insert and i'll talk about this a little bit later okay one of the main characters is this guy who's he's independently wealthy and he sort of observes things and he likes to he likes to buy these toys and look at them and stuff Mm -hmm. he reminds me an awful lot we'll talk about him when we get to him but the 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 crew boss the the crew leader that shows up at the end of the cave dwellers okay very similar character interesting uh in the sense that they're very thoughtful and very i need i need to study this thing uh-huh. So the the time of your life put him on the map, and he had a, a really long career. I mean, he was writing well into the 70s. Mm-hmm. He was married to Carol Grace, who was a famous actress at the time, and with whom he had two children, uh, Aram and Lucy Saroyan, uh, both of which were, were thespians and poets. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got a granddaughter named Strawberry Saroyan, who is a prominent journalist, I oh, guess. Oh, neat. Um, active. So that's a little bit about his family history. Mm-hmm. Carol Grace eventually remarried. Mm-hmm. So the stepfather for both Aram and Lucy Saroyan was Walter Matthau. Oh. If you know that name. Yeah. From the Odd Couple. So uh, there's a little bit of a connection there. Saroyan mm-hmm. obviously was a fairly prominent guy in his time. For sure. And a number of his plays were were well celebrated. It's just the one that everybody really knows is the time of your life. It still gets produced mm-hmm. here and there. And The Cave Dwellers, I would say, is maybe like his second or third best-known play. Okay. I know that it still gets produced here and there. Uh, When I did my research for it, I found uh, productions in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one as recently as 2007 
Okay. Uh, so I know it does get produced here and there, although I've, I've never heard of it being done around our area at all. Yeah. So I don't know how common it is with like community theaters and that sort of thing. Sure. It's still not very frequent, certainly. Probably the most notable thing about it, mm-hmm. it's kind of an example of American existentialism and absurdism. Okay. Which was predominantly a European thing. Yeah. There aren't a lot of uh, of good examples of American playwrights who, who really dabbled in that particular realm. Yeah. But this is sort of like that. There are definitely elements of ex- existentialist philosophy here, uh, as well as sort of an absurdist uh, theme. Sure. Okay. Well, we can certainly get into some of those themes in a bit. So first, let's address the cast. I took a look at it. Grand total is 14 people in this cast. That's assuming you're not doubling anything up. Yes. In the original production, a different actor played every single role. Mm -hmm. And it's a difficult thing because in the play, there's one scene where you see four actors who never appear again. Yeah. They're part of a dream sequence. Yes. And then there are two roles that show up at the very end, and that's all. They're just in the last two scenes. Mm Mm-hmm. In terms of the core cast, what you've got is four men and three women. Mm-hmm. There's the king and the queen. Yep. There's the duke. Mm-hmm. And there's the girl. Yes. And the king and the queen are both older. They'd be mm-hmm. saying 60s plus, something like that. Maybe not quite that old. Yeah. Uh, the duke is a boxer, and he's past his prime. I sort of assumed he was 30s or possibly even 40s. Yeah. And the girl is meant to be very young, mm-hmm. probably 20s. Not a girl girl, but, yeah, not you like, know. Not a child, but, yeah. A, <laughs> a young woman. A young, a very young woman. There is, they enter at the very end of the first act, but there's the mother and the father. Mm-hmm. And there's a bear. <laughs> and the bear, you know, I, I put down four men, three women, but I don't see any reason why you couldn't get a, a woman to play the bear. It's just a person yeah. in a bear outfit or a bear yeah. suit, and uh, and I'd think that would be one that you could just as easily have a woman play as you could a man. The role is agender. Sure. <laughs> in addition, you've got uh, the support cast. There's the boss and Jamie, who mm-hmm. show up at the very end, so two men there. There's the silent boy. Yes. Who doesn't have any lines because he's mute, but mm-hmm. he's in his maybe in his 20s. Yeah. Uh, I think Jamie's in his 20s. The boss, I don't know, 40s maybe. Yeah. I, I don't, when I read it, I don't think I noticed any specifics when it came to age. For not not as far as those go, no. And then there's the uh, the people from the dream sequence. Yeah. Which are the young opponent, the woman with a dog, the young man, and the young queen. Right. And of those characters, I would say that the young queen might actually be a child. Yes, I got that vibe as well. I think, honestly, in terms of this cast, if you wanted to cut it down a little bit in terms of the number of actors you've got in it, Mm -hmm. the main core cast of seven people, I don't think you can double up. Right. But I could easily see the characters from the dream sequence wearing masks. Sure, yeah. You know, just some sort of basic facial mask. So your boss, your Jamie, your silent boy could all be doubled up mm-hmm. with, with actors from that. I mean, one's oh, a young yeah. woman, and I don't know where you'd be able to get a double up there. One's mm-hmm. going to be a little girl. But the two guys, for sure, mm-hmm. could easily be the boss and Jamie or the boss and the silent boy or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. But that was a thought I had in terms of doubling up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I said, the original production just had different actors for everything. Yeah. So that's the cast. Now, there is one thing I do need to note. Uh, Jamie, who is the assistant to the boss, Uh, is written as an African-American young man. Yes. And I don't think, I mean, there's not 
a phonetic vernacular going on here. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the script that says he's black. And, of course, the theme of the script has nothing to do with ethnicity or anything yeah. like that. And honestly, I think most of your cast could be colorblind casted. Oh, just, absolutely. Just depending on who's available from yeah. your community. Yeah, Essentially. Sure. Uh, so I don't think there's any absolute need for anybody to be any specific ethnicity in this mm-hmm. cast. So that's all I really have to say about that is mm-hmm. that, yes, in the script, I'm not going to tell you because I don't want it on this <laughs> podcast. I'm not going to tell you how the script refers to uh, Jamie. Yeah. But he is an African-American worker and he's yeah. meant to be a young man. Right. In terms of the set requirements and stuff, the great thing about the set is it's an empty theater. It's so simple. Yeah. It's an empty empty theater and three bunk beds. Yes. Or three beds. And it's trashy, and it's meant to be this abandoned theater that's fallen into disuse. So there's going to be trash around, mm-hmm. and the beds are going to look really, really bad. Yeah. The main three characters are going to be dressed in tatters. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, this is a timeless play. Oh, yeah. It takes place in 1957, mm-hmm. but that's... For the most part, when it comes to costumes and stuff, that's irrelevant. Yeah. Because the main characters are dressed in rags. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're not going to be dressed in the, the fashions of the time necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then like the boss and the Jamie, they're, they're probably going to be dressed in work clothes. Yeah. Um, so costuming should be relatively simple for this. Mm-hmm. If I was to do it, I would still say, for all intents and purposes, this takes place in 1957. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you would have to worry too much about making sure it's period. Right. Oh, other technical requirements. There's not a lot. Yeah. There is a dream sequence, which for which I would suggest a lighting change. Mm-hmm. Maybe some ambient music or something. Yeah. But other than that, it's pretty much just lights up, lights down. Yeah. There's not any... Oh, there's some sound effects. Yeah, there's that's the, right. Because it's in a construction area, and so you've got demolition happening Yes. somewhere off stage. So there are explosions. They're basically tearing down buildings in the area, right? They're dynamiting them. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what the explosions are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically some audio effects, some light effects, but nothing really outside the realm of what you would expect an average theater to be able to accomplish, right? Yeah, there's nothing here that's super weird or hard to get. Okay, great. Well, let's move on to the plot. Um, It is a fairly simple one, um, but I think it's kind of interesting into some some of the themes that it gets into. So let's talk about some of that. Uh, The plot itself is, it's not standard. There's a reason why I say this is related to existentialism and absurdism. I mean, there's definitely a timeline Mm-hmm. going on it takes place over a period of like less than a week like a weekend yeah well the, the weekend is a there's a time gap in there yeah. at the very very end over the weekend but it's only a few days yeah it's less than a week and it takes place in the winter time in new york city mm-hmm. and there's frequent references to snow and cold and that sort of thing so yeah. there's Right away, there's an acting requirement that you're going to have to act like you're freezing cold. <laughs> uh, the story, it's, I mean, I'll get into it a little bit here, but it's its a pretty simple, straightforward story. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges of the script is the philosophy. Yes. And trying to understand the motivations of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, like, the queen was particularly difficult to sort of understand her perspective. Yeah. And I think that's because they all sort of represent existence or philosophies about existence. Okay. But I couldn't swear that I know for sure what those things are. Sure. Anyway, so we open up on this abandoned theater. 
in the Lower East Side of New York City, and it's in the midst of a rebuilding project. So these old theaters are getting torn down, and that's what you hear off stage are explosions pretty much right away. Mm-hmm. You've got the queen sleeping on one of the, the, the beds, and she coughs here and there. It occurred to me that rather than just have the actor playing the queen just cough intermittently, maybe actually script out a few coughs. Oh, okay. Here, there, so it's not interrupting what the act the other actors are doing. Yeah, and the Duke is on stage, and the Duke, of course, he's a an ex boxer, and he's I think he's reading plays. Yes, there's a stack of old plays in there. Mm-hmm. So the Duke is reading a play, and the girl comes running in, mm-hmm. and she's afraid because she heard the explosions and everything. And uh, she comes in, and she meets the Duke, and she's afraid. She's got nowhere to go. She's homeless. Mm-hmm. And the Duke is saying, well, the king is in charge. We've got the king and the queen, and I'm the Duke. Yep. And he says, one of the rules is, if you want to stay here, you have to be a theater person. Mm-hmm. You have to be in theater. And he says, the king was a Shakespearean actor and a clown, yep. and the queen was an actress. And he said he, himself he was a boxer, so technically that counts. <laughs> It was a performer. Yeah, <laughs> and so the Duke is trying to find something, you know, kind of grilling or saying, "Are you? Have you never been on stage before? Yeah. You know." So the girl does things like recite the Pledge of Allegiance, mm-hmm. which I'm sure is very cute on stage. Yeah. Uh, notably, the Pledge of Allegiance is a little outdated in this because yeah. it omits the under God. Mm-hmm. It's just one nation indivisible. Yeah. Which is what the Pledge of Allegiance was prior to 1954. Yeah. So by the time this play was on stage, it had actually been changed for three years. Mm-hmm. So it makes me kind of wonder if maybe the girl is not aware of current events or something, or if that was a deliberate that could choice. Be, you know, I don't know. It may have been a deliberate choice on the part of the playwright, or it may have just been because up to that point, that had been the way it was. Yeah. Uh, she also sings a little bit. Mm-hmm. She talks about what she, where she comes from, that she used to work at a factory, mm-hmm. but she got fired for daydreaming on the job, and... Some parts were done wrong. Yeah. And she made toy guns at a, yeah. at a place called U.S. Toy. I'm sure there's some symbolism there. Could be. Somewhere. And so when she performs or she tries to perform, the queen wakes up and says, welcome, welcome here. Yeah. So really what we have in this first scene is a nice little introduction. Mm-hmm. And something that's not real clear yet in the script, but it has to be there for the actors, is that the Duke and the girl have feelings for each other. Yeah. Or at least they're developing feelings for them each other, but mm-hmm. it, it hasn't become apparent yet, mm-hmm. uh, at least not in the script. Yeah. So in the initial, there's, there's you know, the initial meet cute, sort of. Yeah. Uh, for those two characters. Uh, the scene ends, and then, I mean, I should say, there's a grand total of 10 scenes. Okay. Most of which are very short. Yes. Uh, there's a first act and a second act, real easy to put an intermission right between the two of them. Absolutely. And there's four scenes in the first act and six in the second act. Mm-hmm. So the second scene, a little bit later, the girl's cleaning up, and it's during this scene that the king arrives. Mm-hmm. And the king is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's one of my favorite parts in the entire play because he's just, he's like Sir Ian McKellen. Yeah. As a homeless royalty. You know, yeah. and he's he's got this theatricality to him. He's got this great monologue when he comes in yes. about how he was begging and this woman with a dog saw him. Yeah. And uh, it's really, it's probably one of the best. He's got a few monologues, but that one really is one of the better ones, I think. Yeah, and his, his language for some of those monologues is just so elevated. 
It's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very, it's very theatrical. I yes. mean, he's totally a theater person mm-hmm. uh, coming in. Yeah, so that would be a fun role, I think. It would be, and he, the king, he comes in with bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these people are they're very very hungry, and that's one of the factors throughout most of the play. I think is that they're all really really hungry. Mm-hmm. And so he brought in a loaf of bread, and there's also a theme of generosity and caring for each other and that's what we see a lot in this play is people making these little sacrifices yes. for each other yeah the king immediately welcomes the girl mm-hmm. they sit down and they to eat the bread the king gives the girl some money that yep. he got for begging the queen and the king they both kind of talk about their own history in this mm-hmm. scene a little bit we find out the queen came from poverty yeah whereas the king was actually very wealthy very famous actor evidently at one point in time yeah and in part of his monologue he talks about how at one point in time he turned his back to a beggar yeah and so it's sort of things coming back to get him mm-hmm. and his regret for that now mm-hmm. so the scene ends mm-hmm. and then the next scene opens up and they're finishing the bread mm-hmm. so all of these this is all the same day so far yes and there's there's a whole lot of improv and acting going on. The, yeah. You know, and a lot of it is, it doesn't really advance the plot. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is just um, philosophy. Yeah. Uh, the nature of existence, that sort of thing. There's a prompt for the um, the girl to do some performance because mm-hmm. you know I did some performance. You got to do some performance as well. Mm-hmm. And the Duke really coaches her. Yeah. And there's this little bit here. They evidently they write a script or something because it says that he pulls out a manuscript. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they're exchanging lines, but it's very brief. Yeah. That was when I read it, it was something that was kind of a little hard for me to tell if it was meant to appear as if they were working off of the same script or if they were doing a bit of improv but using the script kind like pretending that they were reading off a script. I think that's probably the case, yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of improv, but they definitely have a script there. Mm-hmm. And based on the context, I think it's one that they maybe wrote themselves. Because it's very short. Yeah. He is there with a pile of scripts, too. Yeah. But yeah, I think he's just got a manuscript that he wrote. He and the girl maybe wrote. Yeah. The uh, the Duke, because they've only got three bunks, right? Mm-hmm. The Duke offers his bed to the girl at potential risk to himself. Mm-hmm. So that's how we end up moving into the final scene. Which is the dream sequence. Which is a dream sequence, yes. Yeah. And it's a lot of, I mean, we talk about the importance of stage directions, but sometimes yeah. they're really important. Yep. Because what we have for the fourth scene is this sequence wherein it's the uh, the Duke on stage, everybody else is in bed, mm-hmm. and he's like practice boxing to help stay warm. Yeah. It's very, very cold outside. And so he imagines himself with an opponent, with a mm-hmm. boxing opponent, and that's where an actual actor will come out yep. and spar with him. Mm-hmm. And he's exhausted and everything, and eventually the girl wakes up, mm-hmm. and the girl goes to the, to the Duke and leads him to the bed and lets him sit down. And then it's time for the girl to be up and walking around. Yep. And during this, she has a tango with a young man. Mm-hmm. Not real clear who the young man is supposed to be or anything. Someone from her past, presumably. Possibly, yes. And he leaves and the king gets up and notices what's going on. So he puts the girl in his bed mm-hmm. and he stays up. And during that time, we got the woman with the dog on a leash. Yes. And I think 
because the woman is holding the dog, mm-hmm. you could get away with having a real dog. Yeah. In this case, in mm-hmm. a, you know, like a woman in a mask or something like that mm-hmm. to play the role. But this this person comes out and looks at the king, and uh, there's this little bit of dialogue that mm-hmm. we maybe hear whispered from backstage, or maybe it's a recording or something. Mm-hmm. But you sort of hear the dog talk. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to trade places with the king because yeah. the, the dog evidently finds his position undignified or something. You would rather be a beggar on the street than a dog on a leash. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then, uh, and then the queen gets up, helps the king to her bunk, and so the queen ends up seeing herself as a young person. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have that. Uh, I, I kind of read it as a kid. I did too. Like a little kid comes yeah. out and she sees herself. And then, uh, then they all wake up, mm-hmm. and they all get together, and they start huddling for warmth, but the queen refuses to. Yeah. And it's not real clear what her motivation is for that. Mm-hmm. And all three of them are trying to rationalize with her, and she's, it's, maybe it's undignified, or maybe it's, it's too much of a, an example of fear yeah. to want to huddle together or something like that. Yeah, you, you definitely get a sense that she's too proud to do this for whatever reason something yeah. is going on there that's why i said earlier that some of the the motivations for the characters may be hard to figure out yeah uh, acting challenge of mm-hmm. course absolutely it's during this time we also get some back and forth between the duke and the girl we find out that the girl has a love for the duke mm-hmm. or that she's fallen for him or something and the duke's like don't love me yeah i'm not worth it and they start hearing noises from outside yeah during this so there's this whole scene where they're huddled and then the love and then there's noises going on outside and it talks about a woman moaning and i tell you <laughs> when i first read this script i thought it was going in a completely different direction golly gee whiz me too yeah <laughs> What's happening is, and they, they, they're all scared of the noise. They don't know yep. what's going on at all. And somebody's knocking, and uh-huh. uh, they eventually gather up their courage and open up the door. And what it is is it's a man and a woman, and the woman is giving birth. Yes. And there's a trained bear. <laughs> and there's a trained bear. And there's and the bear's <laughs> name is Gorky, and the bear is a person in a bear suit. <laughs> And that's kind of how it ends. That's how Act One ends. Yeah, there's there's a storm outside. There's a blizzard, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's very very cold. And then somebody decides to give birth outside the door. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just so tickled by the idea of an actor in a bear costume in this otherwise fairly serious play. It really. I mean. <laughs> Part of what, what makes this, I think, an example of existentialism and absurdism is in a lot of those works, you saw royalty sort of intermingled with circus themes. Okay, yeah. And so to me, the man, the woman, and the bear sort of represents the circus. Yeah. You know, the trained bear and the performance and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of where I see it coming from. Sure. It, it looks a little strange, but I mean... We're sort of accepting the situation as it is anyway. So, yeah. and it's a, it's supposed to be a real bear. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't say, oh, it's you know, Gorky's yeah. a guy in a bear suit. Gorky is a bear. Yes, within the context of the play, this is a real, real bear. Mm-hmm. All right, so we have an intermission. 
Mm-hmm. Act two, scene one. It is several hours later. The man and the woman, they're asleep in the bunks. Uh, the girl and the queen are with the baby. The duke is gone. The king is around. He might be out begging, but I don't have a, a note here for when he re-enters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the queen is trying to talk the man, the woman, and the bearer into staying. Uh-huh. Uh, because they're part of now, they're now part of the family, yep. basically. And um, the duke comes in with six quarts of milk that he stole, so he's coming <laughs> in hot. Yes, when he comes in, and he flat out says that he was not only caught but he was chased. Uh-huh. And they ask him if he lost the person who was pursuing him, and he said it just snowed. <laughs> so of course not. No, of course not. What happens is the silent boy comes in. Yes. He knocks, they go ahead and they open the door, you know, jig is up. Mm-hmm. And this boy comes in and it's a completely mute role. Yes. He never actually says anything. So whoever plays the boy, it's a relatively small role, but they're going to have to be able to convey a lot of information with no dialogue. Mm-hmm. And what happens is he examines the place, he looks everybody over, he sees the milk, he sees the baby, mm-hmm. and he sees the girl and they exchange some kind of voiceless communication they have a moment they capital do. m moment they fall in love with each other yeah with so, a look this play is such a fantasy yes. in a lot of ways so they fall in love with each other and then the boy leaves mm-hmm. apparently decides he's not going to get the cops or anything involved understands yeah. that it's it's uh the milk is for the child and mm-hmm. so he's not doing anything now the next two scenes so act two scene two Act two, scene three. Mm-hmm. There isn't a lot of uh, action outside of the queen and the girl and the mother mm-hmm. talking about love. Yeah. And the fact that the girl loves the Duke, but she also loves the silent boy. Yes. And outside of that, I mean, there's a there's a bit where the, the father gives some symbols to the bear and they rehearse a little song Yeah. before going out to perform for, for coins. The thing that I remember from those couple of scenes is that the queen is trying to persuade the girl to admit that she really loves the silent boy and does not love the duke. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the themes of love in this are probably a product of their time. Probably. It's a little hard for me to wrap my head around what's happening here in a realistic sense because this play is not realistic absolutely uh it's got a little bit of selective realism added to it but for the most part it's a little absurdist yeah act two scene four the king comes in with one shoe missing Mm -hmm. he gambled it basically he had a bet with some workmen Mm -hmm. that he could make them laugh and then to make them cry basically he had an acting task Mm -hmm. and they ended up taking his shoe because he lost his shoe in yeah. the bed or something like that. And they actually offered to give it back to him, but he was too proud because mm-hmm. he had lost it fair and square. Yeah. And so he didn't even take the money that they yeah. offered him or anything like that. So it's kind of a sad scene. Mm-hmm. A little while later, Act 2, Scene 5, mm-hmm. we've got this little scene with the father, the duke, and the bear. <laughs> yeah. Where the father's trying to teach the bear to wrestle the duke. Because <laughs> this is going to be their next bit. Yeah. Is a little bit of wrestling. And, uh, you know, the bear is, it's like constant bear hugs <laughs> uh, there's several of them yes. during this and like i said a lot of the action of the play at this point has more to do with the romance that's really not happening on yeah. stage 
it's it's this weird sort of magical thing mm-hmm. that she fell in love at first sight with this boy but she also loves the duke and there's also the question of whether or not the silent boy will even come back yeah so she doesn't even know if she'll ever see him again so but... yeah the notions of love they're a little uh maybe a little old fashioned mhm anyway uh we got finally get back to the story itself uh the boss comes in Mm-hmm. boss of the wrecking crew along with Jamie and mm-hmm. Jamie's a young man who just Jamie doesn't have a lot of lines no most of it's just yes sir yeah and the theater is next to be demolished and we find that out the boss actually knocks on the door as a joke yeah and they open it up so there's probably a little bit of surprise oh yeah man alive there are men alive in here <laughs> He ends up, I mean, he examines the situation. He ends up taking pity on the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, he keeps talking about wanting to study the problem, which is where I think that maybe he's an author insert mm-hmm. or he's based on the same guy that the character from The Time of Your Life is based on. Something okay. there's, there's a similarity sure. in the way that they like to examine problems and really thoroughly think about them. Sure. He tells Jamie to tell the other workmen that they all should all be pretend to be sick for two days. Yeah. Just because. Yeah. And basically what they're trying to do is buy time for the people there to sort of figure out what comes next. Especially for the father, mother, and baby. Yeah. Because they, you know. That's a large part of it. Yeah, yeah they need shelter. There's a little uh, infant involved. Mm-hmm. There's also talk, I think they, uh, they feed him. They, he sends Jamie to go and buy food for him. Yeah. And between Act 2 and Scene 5, I think uh, there's a, a weekend that passes. Yeah. Oh, and uh, they it turns out they kept the shoe. They didn't yeah. throw it out or anything, so they give him his shoe back. Yeah. And uh, Act 2, Scene 6 comes along. Uh, they're about ready to leave. And uh, It's, the, it's the, the following Monday. It right? is. Yeah. yeah. So the weekend has passed. They're about to, to take off. Both the girl and the Duke have been out looking for the silent boy. Mm-hmm. The Duke comes back with the silent boy, so he actually is the one who ends up finding them. The boss comes back with Jamie. They all say goodbye. Mother and father and bear take off. Girl comes back and is united with the silent boy. Mm-hmm. And I guess they live happily ever after. Yep. The boy, I mean, he's he. I guess his dad is the milkman. I think that I think so. Yeah, I think I remember reading that. I mean, I guess he's got a job if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, and then the the king and the queen are the only ones left, and then the whole thing comes to an end at that point in time. Yeah. So there's not a real strong plot. Right. A lot of the action is in the philosophy mm-hmm. and the dialogue and the views of life and death and lies and honesty and all kinds of stuff that, that you actually uh, listed off <laughs> Yeah. at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I will say that if you are thinking about producing this play, I will give fair warning that most of the reviews I read of this play... They weren't critical of the performances, but they had a tendency to be very critical of the script. Yeah. And I think it's because it's kind of existentialist absurdist and kind of not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really neatly fit into any one category. And so yeah. I think maybe a lot of audiences aren't quite sure what to make of it. That could be. But nevertheless, it's a it's a fun script. It's kind of cute mm-hmm. in a way. You know, it's exactly the kind of thing that you could perform 
yeah. at a community theater or for a school play mm-hmm. or something like that. There's nothing objectionable in it. It's just no. maybe going to be difficult for modern actors to figure out their motivation for some of this stuff. Yeah. You know, it, it might be a good show if you were looking for something where you could do a really good in-depth character study or, you know, really dig deep into the themes and ideas of the show if, if that was your goal. But yeah, it, it is accessible. So we would probably say that it would be appropriate for just about any theater, right? Yeah. I think most of the reviews I read were professional theater productions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I could easily see this as a community theater or, or even high school theater. Yeah. So if someone is looking to possibly produce this, uh, where would they look for, for the rights on this one? Samuel French. Okay. Uh, Samuel French, I think, owns most of Soroyan's works. Okay. I wasn't able to find a really recent copy of the script that was published by Samuel French, so I don't know how often people want to do this play. Yeah. But I know that they own the rights. Okay. The edition of The Cave Dwellers I read was published by G.P. Putnam's Sons in 1958. Okay. I actually had to look up G.P. Putnam's Sons. They've been around since the 1830s. Nice. I think. So they've, and as far as I know, they're like a, I think they're bought out by Penguin Books. Sure. At some point in time. But if you want to read those, I would strongly suggest going to your local library uh-huh. and checking into interlibrary loans. Absolutely. We're just gonna we're just gonna beat that one <laughs> over the head every chance we got. Well yeah. Interlibrary loans are pretty good. It's a great resource. All right. Well I guess that's gonna cover it for the cave dwellers. Our next play will be Landscape of the Body by John Guare. However, for our next episode, we may be changing up our format a little bit. Yeah, we're still talking about the specifics, but we may um, shift gears a little bit for yeah. an episode, just, just for the fun of it. Branch out a little bit. Our email address is theplayreaderspod at gmail.com, and we are at theplayreaders on Twitter. Our intro and outro music is Delightful D by Kevin McLeod. And until next time, don't forget to read the stage directions. Mm-hmm.